The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben. Guess what? What? It is our 250th episode of this podcast. 250 episodes of this thing? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. my God. Uh, so does that mean that we're both rich from this? <laughs> I think we're actually poorer. We are poorer <laughs> having done it, uh, at least financially. I think we might be rich, you know, uh, in I'm our r- souls. I'm rich in my rich heart. From, yeah. Yes, exactly. And we, we've talked to so many wonderful, fun Terrific people. Heroes. Uh, inclu- everyone. Yeah. A- including uh, this episode. Uh, who are we talking to? We are talking to, I mean, this is going way back. I mean, this is actually really appropriate for the 250th episode. We're talking to Abe Martinez, who was on our fourth episode ever in 2014. Yeah. Uh, a friend of the show, a friend of mine, uh, my former loader, great client of Hot Ride Cameras. I mean, I, I hear from him for probably every one of his productions, it seems like. I'm really happy to have him back. Uh, he's such a delight to talk to. And boy, talk about like career trajectory. I mean, this guy's career is like a rocket and uh, and he's so interesting and he's got such a great heart. And I love talking to the guy. Uh, I, I'm so excited that we're about to get into this interview. But before that, what are we talking about for close focus today? What's uh, what's going on, Ben? Well, I feel like we've touched on this topic a little bit, but it's I think it's worth kind of keeping a, a watchful eye on it. And that is the Discovery HBO Warner mm. merger, the mega merger and what it's doing to HBO Max specifically. It came out this week that HBO Max, it's not just that they're canceling shows, they're removing them from the service and not like old shows or niche shows, but like one of them is Westworld, which was sort of... Yeah, which is on the homepage of HBO Max for anyone for like the last couple of months. They were, you know, promoting the heck out of that thing. And so to cancel it and also remove it, that just makes me think they must like uh, want to sell it off to another streaming service or something to make some money. I think they want to maybe. Break, I mean, it's like I, I mean, like, look, cancel the whatever you vault. I don't know what it is. It's it's the world of TV. So if it's not getting the views that it needs to get, I understand canceling it because it's not a cheap show to make and it's got a pretty highfalutin and I'm assuming outrageously expensive cast. But to remove it entirely from the service like to me the Westworld is like HBO branding all over it it's it's such an HBO series and yeah sure you could stick it on Netflix or something but like holy crap I mean to me that was a big move and then also the Joss Whedon series The Nevers yeah which was also kind of a surprise to me that they would take the Nevers down uh, again cancel it if it's not doing what you needed to do I get that but it's the show literally came out last year they're not taking uh you know Six feet under, although that would be equally shocking to me if they took six feet under down. But, you know, six feet under has been off the air since like 2010. They're not taking something like that down. They're taking something they just were trying to get us to watch a minute ago. Supposedly, uh, according to Variety, the Nevers actually already had like it was only halfway through season one and they had another batch of episodes that are supposedly ready to air. And those will now never be aired. Those The whole thing is like being scrapped. 
So yeah, that that's uh, what a, it, what a yeah, huge it, bummer. I mean, think of all the work that all those people put into that. Like, I, I feel like you know, stick it somewhere else. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I think it's going to go onto another platform. That's what it sounds like, but it's not going to be on on HBO. So and and really, Westworld that was canceled just last month in November. And the last season only started airing like in August. So it was a very short run. So August basically to November and now gone in December, which is crazy. And and again, not canceled, not available. It's IP that they paid for. It's production that they paid for, that they produced, that they made, scored, color corrected, cast, wrote, all that stuff. And it's just being disappeared basically from the platform. And this to me is one of the problems with streaming. Well, this is the second time they've done this, too. I mean, I, we talked about it before I was watching a series called Close Enough, which got axed. I never got to finish it. They they pulled it from the service. Mm. I had started to watch another one mm. called Infinity Train. These are both animated. I assume that they're, you know, they said they were going to spin off Sesame Street and stuff. Maybe they think that Sesame Street and animation is all going to like go on some other new service. They can get more money from people. I predict and I could be wrong, but they want to keep getting more money for people. And the way that they are going to do that is possibly by having multiple apps. Maybe it's multiple HBOs. Maybe it's Mm. multiple services so that you're paying five for this one, seven for that one, three for that one. And then they get to get more money out of all of their, their viewers. People can't see see the weariness on my face right now. It's just like, (laughs) Oh God. Uh, Another one. uh, I don't know if you saw Minx, which is the 70s set dramedy that is very similar to sort of like the Apple TV plus series physical and that it was a period piece and it had, you know, uh, interesting themes. But yeah, that was renewed for season two, canceled by HBO Max. So I guess we will never see that. So that's well, uh, and, and, and I think it, it bears repeating that, you know, like in the last 10 years or so, we've lost our affinity for physical media and we and they're still out there. You can still get most stuff on Blu-ray if you want it, but it's far less used. It's something, you know, I, I still have my DVD collection because I, I mm-hmm. just can't I can't bring myself to part with it. But um, when you don't live in a world of physical media and you're paying for these services and you assume something like, again, like Westworld is just going to be there because HBO created it and they have their own app and why wouldn't they just put the thing that they made on the thing you know it might have to do with how much they're paying in residuals just to hold on to it who knows Uh, think about it it's like it's like the music industry you don't hear about Spotify saying well you know what we've changed our mind no more Beatles (laughs) or we know sorry no more Rolling Stones well I will say like uh, on Apple Music there's a Fishbone album that I liked a lot and one day I went to play it and it just wasn't on the service anymore and then sometime later it came back on. But but the thing is that on all of these streaming services, be it, you know, HBO Max or Netflix or Shutter, whatever you're you're watching, there's a constant renewal of licenses going on with everything. And so whatever you love and you're and you assume you're paying for. And to me, what's shocking about this is like that the service itself created to get you to watch the service in the first place. It could just go away tomorrow. Also, these are like, I understand when it's a different studio. I understand when they don't own that intellectual property, but mm. these are Warner Brothers properties. These are HBO yeah. properties. These are like flagship made for that network. Probably some a certain number of people out there who subscribe to that service to watch those shows. And now those shows are gone. That's a, that's a, well, this is the, the wild uh, west of streaming and uh, we're, we're in it now. Yeah. I'm sure you can buy these shows all on Blu-ray. Anyway, uh, let's get to our interview with Abe Martinez. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. 
Uh, joining us now is Abe Martinez, and by us, I mean Ben's here too. So Hello. <laughs> hey, I'm sitting in the same room. It's so weird. <laughs> so Ben, I, and Abe, uh, we did this all way back in 2014 together. Uh, Abe was our fourth interview, and now you're back. You're, uh, you're, you're back to let us know what's happened low these seven years or so. It's been since uh, eight years yeah, since oh my we, God. we did this. I feel like the landscape has changed so much in the business and even here and to be here back with you guys, it's been a wild ride. So thanks for having me back. <laughs> well, it's, it's great can't to, wait to catch up. With you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I feel like, uh, y- you know, you weren't at the very, very beginning of your career, but you were doing like really interesting stuff going to foreign countries and working in communities that didn't have filmmaking and stuff like that. And since the last time, like, I, I feel like every time I turn on the TV and I see the cinematographer credit, there you are. Yeah, it's been a, a, definitely a transition, you know, breaking away from being a camera assistant and then transitioning to operator and ultimately DP. But yeah, when I saw you guys last time, I was like in and out of airplanes all the time. I was mm-hmm. flying to different countries and the landscape was still, even back in 2014, I had just finished my project in Kenya. So I was very much still living in a suitcase. I sold yeah, my yeah. house, moved away. And in some ways I'm still in the suitcase from when I almost last saw you, definitely since 2018 when well, I got my first- constantly working. <laughs> yeah, I just stay packed and it turns out that now I have a seven by seven shipping pod that stays floating in the mid zone where I work in Chicago. I did show in Chicago, really? Dallas, New Orleans. So that's where all my stuff is in this pod. And is that like gear or is that just like your personal, like your record collection? Well, I travel with my wife and kids. Uh-huh. So it is my wife, my wife's You keep your wife painting. in the pod? <laughs> I'm calling the cops. Yeah, it's her painting studio, mobile <laughs> painting studio. She's a painter. What? And my my children have instruments and music instruments, so everything just kept building because I kept going show to show to show, and now I have a shipping pod that follows me around, and I have also camera cases, but my camera cases don't go in there. That thankfully Panavision takes care of me and ships yeah, it yeah. job to job, but. Yeah, I'm still nomadic and I haven't really settled down. It's part of what I love about the business is like you never know what genre you're going to shoot. You never know where you go next. And I just always kind of stayed ready. Even when there was times, you know, if I was in L.A. and when I last saw you, you know, in my head, just have a bag ready to go because you just never know. You get a phone call. I got a phone call in your parking lot okay. ready to go to Toronto. And I'm just like, well, wait a minute. This is too fast. I just barely got home. Call I the just, shipping pod. Yeah, I just finished th- 11 months straight. <laughs> yeah, call the shipping <laughs> pod. Exactly. Uh, I, I want to share a memory here about Abe and I, uh, not all the way back to the early days when you'd load film for me, but uh, but really <laughs> going back to, I'm going to say maybe the last just like five years, quite often if I feel like I see you coming and going. Like I see you, you've landed in Los Angeles, you're here for three days, you're taking some meetings, and then you're immediately to go to Atlanta, or you're going to go to Chicago, or you're going to go to something else. And it's usually like, hey, Ilya, great to see you. I need this black magic part, or I need this <laughs> DJI part, or I need yeah. the, I need this thing. Yeah. And it's like, can you ship it to me X? And, yeah. and, and that's, yeah. that really seems like, you know, you travel all over, you have different gear requests and needs and things, and then uh, I get a call, or we get an email, or my team gets hit up, and then it's like, can it be there on Tuesday? And I'm really glad that we've had this long working relationship where we've been able to maintain connection and can help you on all of these projects and these things that, that, that you do around the world. Uh, I know we talked about this, and I don't want to repeat myself from our previous interview. I mean, but you but, can go back to 2014 uh, in, in the archives <laughs> and listen and see how our voices have aged. That, that's right. We, we're all older, and I know I sound probably a bit hoarse because I was yelling out raffle numbers for an hour yesterday because it was our big party here. And Abe, I think it's just it's really funny, too, that you happened to win a Black Magic 
magic. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the whole the whole time yesterday, I was standing around. It felt like everyone was winning around me, and I was like, "Oh, it'd be fun to win something." And I was literally standing at the Black Magic table because uh-huh. those guys were awesome. By the way, they sent me a twelve during the pandemic. They sent me the twelve K camera mm-hmm. for a demo, and it couldn't happen at a better time. Like I tested that thing up and down. I had nothing but time. But yeah, I was standing by the Black Magic table, totally won on the raffle. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to seem like a total setup because I felt like-, like I'm practically sponsored by Black Magic. <laughs> and, uh, but it's still very thrill. It was, it was thrilled. What, what'd you win? What'd you win? A five inch onboard monitor. Yeah. Dang. And, and uh, but I will say, Ilya, you know, this, the thing is that this business I really savor and relish is the relationships. Mm, I because agree. you're right. I, I loaded for you, and it's nothing like being in a pressure cooker together. Mm-hmm. And at that mm-hmm. time, when I was a prep tech, I left the floor to go load film for Ralph Boda ASC. Mm-hmm. And if that's your first film off the rental house floor, then you're like, this is, they go, back then there was no IMDb. They're like, hey, kid buddy up to that guy. He shot Saturday Night Fever. This is like in New York City. <laughs> it's not like you can IMDB someone and like, I literally just walked up to him and started talking to him. met his son, Paul, Paul Boda. I met Paul Boda, Ralph Boda's son in New York City as a prep tech. And then it came to the opportunity where my wife got promoted to Los Angeles. I called him up and immediately within a few weeks of being in LA, I got on a movie with uh, Eugene Levy and Lyndall Hamilton. Oh, wow. Awesome. And he was ASC, but it was non-union. And the, mm. sh- and the show flipped. Oh, wow. So Good for you. So I got in the union, I filled the paperwork out, but after that, I was like, now what? He's done with his movie, I have to go find a, a, a movie. And that's where we met, mm-hmm. is in the indie movie world, mm-hmm. where there was so low budget, they had a van. That that was like possibly one of the worst jobs I ever did. <laughs> it's the, <laughs> the only, only was, job I ever walked off It was off so of. low budget, there yeah. was not a camera truck, they towed around a, a van uh, with all their gear in it, and the van didn't even run. Yeah. Um, but soon after that, I ended up loading film on Ali, Michael Mann with mm-hmm. Chivo, oh, and wow. the rest was history. Um, but either way, all through my journey, you've been there on my first movie that flipped Lionsgate, you got me some of my PL adapters, and you've always been there, even with the lenses, you know, when I'm like sussing out a new movie, talking about lenses, so you have definitely been the couture uh, advisor that tailored to my needs. Uh, the that, Anna Wintour of cameras. <laughs> uh, oh, well, well, I'm happy to do it, and I don't want you to feel not special now, but I, I, this is basically my job now. <laughs> like yeah. my, 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 it's, what I do, it's what I do for people like all day long. But let's dive into all the stuff that's happened since 2014. I mean, and of course, you know, you've been working all through the pandemic here, but uh, you've got a lot of like really big credits and the streaming stuff that has now all come out. Uh, anything in particular you really like to talk about? Is there somewhere you want to start in this timeline of journey from... Uh, well, from- I can talk about where I'm at now. I just finished a new series, which is with the Cobra Kai creators. One of my my directors, uh, Sherwin Shalanti, called it, uh, it's a love letter to 80s action movies. Oh, cool. Like, you know, big bazookas, everything's over the top, fun. It's a comedy. It's like Hangover meets Seal Team. Oh, wow. It's like going on a mission while you're just totally wasted. Uh, it's a new Netflix series. Can, can you say what it's called? It's called Obliterated. Oh, okay. And uh, I just finished that. And that, this is where I'm at currently. I just, prior to that, I was on National Treasure. But uh, this is the place I'm at, I'm at currently, which is like VFX, action, you know, lots of video walls, oh, big yeah. sets, big thinking, set like extensions. Video walls like, like, uh, like, like volume, volume kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah but not, not the full experience. It's like car work, mm. adding walls to the sets. The LED, you it's, know, it's and some they, of the most expensive uh, type of work you can do right now. If you're actually in one of these stages where they have millions of dollars worth of stuff in there, and it costs them millions of dollars to actually build it, yeah, they they charge huge, huge day rates to get into a volume to to shoot anything. Yeah, and so I had to 
figure out the process. And I guess my starting place was like back in the day when we did poor man's process. Mm. You remember we have the, the you have some there with the oh, light. Yes, back in the through. day when we did that, like we don't do that now. <laughs> it's still very much a reality <laughs> even on on the network TV. But I ended up just figuring out the angles that we needed for our car work. I kind of looked at some episodes, see what the editors like to cut, see what how I like to shoot. And I kind of just mimicked what we did on regular hood mount, hostess tray, and those angles, those millimeters, I ended up just car- doing the math, figuring out the exact size video walls we needed. And my producer ended up calling it middle class process because oh. it kind of mm. tailored to your needs. Yeah, yeah. And so I was like, this is, and I would talk with the directors. And I said, you should These, copyright that. You yeah, should have a website I, I about that. that right now. Yeah, middle class process. So it's, middle class process is just taken. It's better than poor man's process. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and everyone knows what you mean. Every, the, you know, the entire company as it was forming. Uh, so I ended up using these video walls by Pixel out of New Orleans. And that's how it started. That was my starting place of figuring out how to detune walls. And I was able to ex- do a lot of experimenting, but it led me all the way until like my last show, just that I just wrapped but over 100 feet of video wall I was doing. I was shooting plates for the video wall, shooting on rooftops in Vegas. I ended up having slinging work, uh, getting plates shot in Morocco. Just uh, and whenever we had a set, because you don't know, a lot of the scripts aren't fleshed out, and they're like, oh, maybe they did a combat mission in Morocco. How do we get a custom plate for our set? So with the production designer, so now I've evolved uh, ways away from middle class process, and it's upper been, middle class, yeah, upper, upper middle, upper class. middle class. class, bougie, slightly bougie process, <laughs> first class. Um, but I'm but I'm nowhere shooting two two D and a half plates. Uh, it's mostly used for set design to really transport the actors because there's nothing like having the actor really fill the space, which really informs a sense of place. And same thing with National Treasure. I had some plates shot in Mexico as we were building our sets, and you just really design the set around to the size of the video wall. So it's gotten quite complicated, a lot of math, and it's gotten really, really time-consuming with emails on top of the basic duties as a DP. But I've really grown a lot in the video wall space, and it's very much, it's, I wouldn't say it's quite there yet, I think we're just getting started, and, and I'm even doing video walls on on location, you know, the day for nights. Mm-hmm. Well, I just will also transport an entire video wall to uh, on location. And, and have, so it's a, it's a nighttime video wall? Yeah, you then... can put uh, fly swatters above it, make some negative, and you can transport your sets on location and just having exterior video walls built. And so it's been quite a game changer for me recently, trying to make it economical and yet very, very creative. Let me ask you, because this, this befuddles me. I, I watch a lot of shows that I know use this stuff. When I, when we first saw The Mandalorian, it was like shocking that they were using Unreal Engine and these video wall, you know, the volume technology and stuff like that. And that stuff looks good and I think even holds up. But there's a lot of that kind of work that doesn't work. So what's the key to making it work? Well, it's been fun watching because now I'm a little more attuned to watching even Hitchcock and and seeing like the evolution yeah yeah it's almost like it could be its own class in college like car work and the evolution of it car work it should be a class in school oh my god <laughs> you're gonna spend so much of your life doing it you should have one semester of it under your belt yeah and I feel like it's a growing process of trying to get truthfulness trying to get realism and the cool thing about it is, is the interactive lighting but there's also so many different tricks that I do that I just came out of necessity how to have solutions. And I feel like 
no matter where you are in the camera department, it's all about solutions. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I put some Hampshire frost between the wall and the actor, and it's really having the consistent depth of field. So whether you're detuning the wall to make your uh, background feel more natural, or maybe it's a certain diffusion filter that's just gonna smooth out the edges, because you're having two sensors basically talking to one another, yeah. and how you bridge that gap in a natural way is, I think, uh, whatever tricks that you come up with to survive uh, a solution. I would say we're not there yet. I'm continuously uh, testing, but also that technology is changing. I'm having different walls that I had in 2020, and to me, I also treat it as a light. I also flip it to green screen when I need it. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we're doing the helicopter work, I shoot a plate, I shoot practically with the helicopter coming into the shot, into the penthouse, and then I'll shoot a, a blue screen, green screen if I need to. It, and sometimes I make it all negative and then I add a little portion that makes it feel like a 16 by 16 light panel. <laughs> it, it's pretty amazing to have a self-illuminated green screen. To, like you, you remember you know, having to go back, I'm sure, to the era of doing this in film where it was like, you had to make it really even. You had to make sure that it was, you know, you didn't have a harsh spill and reflections. And it was, it was, it's a real pain to properly light uh, a green screen. And now you can flip a switch and it's self-illuminating. It's gotta, it's gotta free you up a bit. It, it does, and it does speed up the process. And now I do something even more interesting: is I shoot plates of the set, and if you have to go do, do an insert, you go to the video wall and you throw up the bar, and you add a little background. And you actually feel like you're in the bar. Nobody what? will ever notice. And so I, I will sometimes take a picture of my cell phone of the set or my Fuji camera. Feed that to the wall. Give it to the feed it to the <laughs> wall and do an insert. Oh my God! Really? Oh, it's it's insane. Uh, this is all based on how do we go back, build a portion of the set, or well, just put it on the video wall and I can shoot an insert. Uh, so it's it's been very no, that's, that's brilliant. Yeah, it's it, and I'll show you a picture later cool. where you won't even tell. You, you, they just bring back the same background, mm-hmm. and I also just try to bring back little pieces of the set to make it feel natural, but it's seamless on the cut, and you can and it's only maybe this big on a huge video wall. I'm just using this much space according to the mill. So I shoot some plates before we move on. We're inside the screening room and Abe's pointing to a 10 foot screen. So so yeah, so a little piece of wall. And of course, what's amazing about all of this is that the video walls work because traditionally this is all like very out of focus stuff. Really what we're talking about is faking locations, whether they be interior, exterior on video walls. And basically it's sort of a blurred background, but absolutely gives off the the sense of place and you can actually use them now for lighting simultaneously as a source of light for for whatever your your foreground subject is it's just it's really it's really i predict i don't know when it'll be but i predict that this technology is going to be coming to uh people's homes or at least for like sort of like maybe more the youtube crowd meetings yeah yeah, really and it's it's might be from projector Mm -hmm. it might be from leds i've seen some people already sort of experimenting with their television sets at home and it's really it's really Cool. There, there is cool a, stuff. There's a YouTube channel I watch actually. That's this guy who does Premiere Pro uh, tricks and tips, and uh, he actually talks about it. He has a video projector giving the background, and it, the background it looks like somebody's house. It doesn't. He hasn't made it look like he's on a spaceship or anything. But uh, just wait. But, but but yeah. But I mean, I feel like you know, if I uh, didn't, if I wasn't sharing an office with my wife, I would do that, and I would do messed up stuff. So <laughs> yeah, it's it's still very sophisticated. There's a lot of math involved because you are literally. I mean, we're building huge sets around these video walls, yeah. so the sight lines have to be precise, uh, not to see offset. 
So there's little tricks you can do with the production designer. I spend a lot of time with production designer and art director. Uh, do, designing. Does the direct, you and the director have to like really figure out your coverage before you even go down this path so that you're not, because like on the day, uh, if the director's like, hey, I want to turn around 180 degrees, and you're like, there's no video wall there, bub, sorry. It mm. is interesting because, you know, as they're, they're, they're plotting it out, I will stand out there with it during the prep talk through some of the angles so I'm prepared on the day because sometimes you have to augment it but it's really a ton of math and if you don't have your math right you're going to be very limited on the day and I don't want to disappoint the director but ultimately I try to relieve the director of having any worry because then that's the first thing they look for when they show up is to see like where it falls apart but the cool thing is when they walk onto set they're 40 stories high above Vegas and they're looking to the horizon line deep in the background and I'm able to shoot night plates, day plates, any type of plate that you want and the actors absolutely love it. I love it for the natural lighting of it. So the, I think we're just barely scratching the surface in terms of storytelling and these video walls are offering lots of opportunities for being creative. Yeah, that all makes sense. Now, I, wa I definitely want to talk to you about Queen of the South because you got to work with a really good friend of mine, Ed Sanchez. I went to college with Ed, and uh, he was a producing director on that show, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, I was so lucky to work with Ed. I can't believe there's a small world. Hearing you say that, I feel like we're alumni now because Ed Sanchez is a unicorn out there who I just love his style of filmmaking. He truly is an artist, and his viewpoint is something I delight in in terms of his background because you're right when he came when he showed up when I met him I knew the movie he shot but just meeting him and being part of his process was uh, delightful to just be with him the full season long as producing director but yeah I love Ed and teaming up with him uh, in a cartel world not necessarily a horror mm -hmm. genre the thing that was relatable is the blood and but the way you could tell, like he does add his slant of storytelling that engages the audience to participate. And that's something, one of the biggest takeaways I had with Ed on shooting Queen of the South was that process. Because our lead actress, or our lead character was always on the run, is always the cat and mouse. Yeah, yeah. And you just never know who was around the corner ready to try to chop your head off. <laughs> I mean, because like when we last uh, talked to you in 2014, so eight years ago, almost nine years ago, I feel like you were about to blow up. Like we could feel kind of the simmer. Was Queen of the South the thing or or like what was the thing that kind of like got you to the point where like you're shooting big stuff, you're, you're doing a lot of TV. What was the thing that kind of got you into yes. that world? So I came back from Kenya and I was already starting to shoot indie movies. I was saying no to assisting on shows, like, on movies like Born Identity as a camera assistant. And I was gonna segue to camera operator, and I ended up getting season one of Queen of the South as a camera operator with mm. with the agreement that I would shoot second unit and double ups. And Cameron Duncan was the, the DP on that series, and that series, the DP shot every episode. So they changed their concept, I think maybe the episode three, where you were going back and forth uh, in terms of flashbacks, like it was, some part of the sequence was flashbacks, part of it was real time, and then they changed the concept, so I had to go back and do a lot of shooting. But then Cameron left early to go do Longmire, and I stayed on the show to shoot the season finale, and I think that's kind of where it started that I, that I ended up shooting the season finale of season one, and the studio and everyone, the producers and everybody was happy with the, um, the result. It was very seamless. I think Cameron Duncan, the DP Cameron Duncan and I come from the same place. Uh, in terms of the camera department. And so we had a shorthand, so it was an easy transition. And then Cameron didn't come back to season two, 
And the studio was like, you know, I think we're gonna support you to, to get, get you ready to shoot. And I had a lot of support from the showrunner. And in season three, I became uh, the lead DP and shot for the next uh, three years wow. of Queen of South. And so that was the thing that kind of broke that that show kind of put you in that slot. It was. I had a lot of support from Fox Twenty One and the studio and the executives to shoot. And a lot of it also too is I felt like shooting Queen of South as a Latino person also gave me a way to kind of really because my dad was a biker. And, you know, it's like I came from a very a neighborhood that actually had gangs. And I felt like a lot of that storyline I, I could relate to in terms of like being displaced. And I feel like I feel like a lot of the storytelling I'm doing lately is about being displaced. I think naturally as a camera person, DP, photographer, uh, street photographer, I see storytelling as a, a person that is displaced. Like I think when I was in school, elementary, middle school, high school, like my favorite time was to go on a field trip. Like that was like the most exciting. We all jump on the bus and go to a location, go to the National History Museum, to the zoo. And I always felt like that was like my zone was the field trips. And look at the film crew dynamic. This is what we do. We jump in a, in a van and we're, where are we going today? We're gonna shoot a spaceship. <laughs> so, so Queen of the South had that, it, it, it took place and uh, we would have to fake New Orleans or Dallas for Colombia or Germany. And as I traveled so much, I used a lot of elements that I learned traveling because I even worked on a documentary where I had to go deep down into Colombia where they're actually making cocaine. Mm -hmm. So as between shows, I would be in Colombia while I'm still in Queen of the South and I'm taking pictures to a place deep in the bush to the Embarer tribe where you have to take a, a eight hour four by four drive and a six hour boat ride to go deep into to see these tribes and in, deep into Colombia. And I'm taking pictures as a reference, sending them to the production designer. This is the way it looks. This is how it feels real. And the boat that I was in, there was a priest. It's just like the movies. There's a guy, there's a priest on the boat. There's a guy with a white flag. It's basically saying like, hey, don't shoot us. Don't shoot us. And Wow. So a lot of these experiences, uh, working you know, in these expeditions, have really informed the shooting on network television and how to talk to the production designer, how to make it feel real, make it feel like Colombia, make it feel like Mexico. I was, same thing, I was in Mexico shooting a documentary and uh, the van driver, transportation guy, was stabbed uh, like a, a week scary. prior and I'm running around with a camera trying to document, but still on Queen of the South, and again, taking pictures and to the production designer. And I felt like that was kind of what was a, a game changer for the show is that I felt like I wanted to bring in more of my culture, more of my history. And it, it was really a diverse cast of Latino culture. And that was kind of the starting place where I have. But I think all the way through is the same thing with it being displaced. 61st Street, which is a courtroom drama of uh, someone being in the wrong place at the wrong time and running from the cops, somebody who's on the run. And I feel like this is where almost all my storytelling has been of this, the chase. Yeah. And I love French Connection. I love Scarface. Oh. Oh, yeah. You want to give a shout out to John Brawley? I know you guys are pals. And John Brawley also came in and did uh, Queen of the South and stuff with you. So, so, so John Brawley did season two of Queen of the South. And I had to inherit what John Brawley set up for Queen of the South. 
because John Brawley came in from Australia and he brought all his black magic cameras and he really strengthened the, my workflow uh, and I give a lot of credit to John Brawley in terms of I've always used multiple cameras I think when I was an assistant on Spider-Man 3 with Bill Pope we had Vista Vision 235 435 we must have had like eight cameras but only two camera teams they had actual so, Vista Vision on that sorry I don't mean to be uh, yeah I, Spider-Man 3 Sam Raimi yeah, we yeah. had two Vista Vision cameras full time and wow and same thing, it's like you have to know with Bill, like there even though it's like one, you know, page and a half a day, you had to be very precise <laughs> of of using the same gear you had on your Panavision cameras on the VistaVision and remote focus and you had to make it work in a modern era with VistaVision. But yeah, I was lugging around that VistaVision camera for almost a year. Wow. Spider Man three. Uh, with Bill. For, for uh, our listeners who don't know, VistaVision is a 35 millimeter format where the film actually runs sideways instead of vertically, and the the gear is all huge. It's all really, really big, really, yeah, really it's heavy. Three and frame pull across instead of one. Instead, it's like it's like uh, 12 perf pull across instead of four perf pull down. I was a projectionist. No, it's, sorry. No, it's well, I, I'm pretty sure it's pretty close to the uh, the the format that you might shoot at. That's uh, full frame. Full frame is is very close to VistaVision. So yeah, it's interesting to look back because that was like a normal thing back then. But now that I look back, it does sound crazy. <laughs> that was like the Vista Visions. We had two of them sitting on the truck and, you know, it was just like a normal thing. I just to, didn't know Vista Vision was used even that recently. I'm sorry, I didn't, did not mean to no, turn this well, into the Vista even, Vision No, even when I was already shooting indie movies and shooting promos for Showtime, I mean, when I was in transition, I had to step away from movies Quinn Django and Chain called me, but they needed people who knew film even in 2012. And well, I was already, Tarantino, so. and I was already shooting. But if you get a call to come be Quentin Tarantino's assistant for his movie cam, and he's like, "Well, Quinn likes to operate every now and then. We just need someone to be ready for him on standby." And they had just got a new camera team. They called me in, and so basically anything that has a mountain, hill, or snow, I was there helping the team, Gregor, build the cameras and all their Bob's anamorphic lenses. But even up until then, I was like working with Movie Cam in 2012. Uh, that was my last film job ever. Was on Django and Chain to be a, to assist Quinn's camera. But yeah, that's becoming to. It's a lost art. It's a lost art, and even now they're trying to to revamp and train people on film. Yeah, I saw that the union was going to do a loading workshop. Yeah, <laughs> that was like. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I know that they've they've done loading workshops for a long time, but uh, you know, at the same time, it was like, wow, they're they're doing it because I I heard there's a real need of loaders. It's hard to find people who have the film skills these days. So. But back to John Brawley. So his workflow process was having a handful of Blackmagic cameras, Ursa Mini, to complement the Alexa, and with LiDAR, we're able to really color match to the show spec. So now I, I still use multiple cameras as part of my workflow. So now I, I have usually up to eight cameras on a show. Whoa. So this last... Um, but like how many are you ro rolling and, at the same time? And how time? many camera teams do you well, have? Well, if we have... I have three full time. I try to. Um, only on the big stunt sequences, I have maybe five to six cameras rolling. I don't roll three cameras all the time. But we had a big cast, but I had three full-time camera teams on Queen of the South and also this last one, Obliterate. But Obliterate, I had two FX3s, two FX6s, which were hard to get, oh my gosh, uh, and four Venices. Hey, let's talk a little bit about your obsession with color and and your street photography, because I, I, I follow your Instagram. I see the stuff that you that you yeah, put up there. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And, and 
you put like really saturated colors and all kinds of colorful stuff in there. And it, it's, it's really fun for me. And it's like, it's sort of like the little check-ins. They come through my feed. It's like, Oh, look what Abe posted. Oh, look what Abe posted. Look at, look at this. And so to tell me about, you know, color and, and sort of like, I, I know it's, it's like a hobby for you, but you must love it. So, you know, it's, to- it's weird. It's, it, it's street photography. Well, I've been shooting still since eighth grade developing film. So I've always, even when I was a loader, I had my, my stills camera underneath, I'm like always thinking, oh, I'm gonna spool off some short ends and shoot. And I, up to a while I started shooting, but you know, working with Michael Mann movies, I shot you know, 1.6 million feet of film. There's no time to shoot yeah. any type of photography. But now as DP, the street photography really informs the, the reality of the day because you can have the AD team set background, you can have them, you know, the back, what's behind the actor is so important. And I felt I spend so much time lighting actors really focus on skin tone, which is, you know, a shorthand, yes, but it's always changing depending on the sensor technology and diffusion and your color and your show and your genre. So street photography gives me a place where I don't have a grip. I don't have uh, 200 people on the sidelines. I'm able to see random color combinations coming together. I'm able to explore timing of how people move you know, because if I see somebody wearing nothing but red, I see a yellow wall, I time it out. I don't shoot multiple frames at once. I take that perfect one moment uh, with the classic street photography ethos. And the thing is for me, it's not only that, it's also my camera. I, I shoot with Fuji. I was gonna ask if you, like what camera yeah, you're That you looks using. like a Fuji around your neck right yes, now. Yes, Fuji. Yeah, no, so great. I, I love the shot. And like you, you put your kids to work too for your street photography, which I think is wonderful. Yeah, so. <laughs> I. it's kind of like fishing when you, I'm not going to always get the most excellent picture. One of them, maybe. Some, there's been days I shoot and I don't get anything. But there's a, a, a sense of rush. I feel like oh, so lucky because I truly, since eighth grade, wanted to do this. And there's endorphins, like runner's high, that goes off. Even when I'm shooting on set, I know people want to rap early. But it is, it is so exciting to be shooting and lighting. And mm. and, and that when I'm away from it, I, go, I still shoot street photography. And it, it's a, you get the big catch, the right color combination, the right movement, the right emotion. And you just never know. It's so unpredictable. It's the one thing I, I can't control. And you're right, I do push color. But what I do is I really try to push the color in certain areas of uh, just to inform me how it reacts and responds with the sensor. And so for me, their color science, Fuji, I've had great meetings between me, LiDARN, and Fuji. Their, Fuji's been very supportive of, of me uh, tapping into some of their process. So when you buy their cameras, it's kind of like having 18 film stocks. But I will say there's something about the withdrawal of color. So uh, at times when I can, I shoot raw black and white. Mm. I don't focus on color when I'm shooting. I'm focusing on shadow. And so when you shoot raw and black and white, you're looking at it, you're seeing the lines in the shadow, you're seeing the ratios. And then when I go home and put it into my color system, since it's raw, it goes back to color. So it's like almost developing your film. Oh, wow. And Yeah, it's like you get, you get two in one. And so, but the cool thing about this is I do have a sense of control because then I could pick which film stock I want Fuji to be. So when I'm framing and shooting, it's black and white on the sensor. So all I do is like think in black and white and I let uh, color come to me as a gift in certain film color science. So it, it helps me in the prep not necessarily the on the day shooting. So it's all in advance when we're building sets, wardrobe, I'm able to show the costume designer, the art director, this is what happens to the red with the LUT. Because right now, they just show up with a certain color red, and then it gets colored and it might be different. This here kind of roughs it in. We're like, this is what the red's gonna look like with the LUT. 
And I'm a film, I come from a film background, and what Fujifilm did was they kept pushing and carrying over, bridging the gap to digital with their color science. It's still under lock and key. You can't get the codes to the color science. You have to get the camera, but you're able to fine tune what they have based off film because there was no thing where you shoot with Kodak and that's the Kodak experience. It's like you had your colorist. And so I also involved my colorist uh, from LiDAR into this process with Fuji. But it all came from my street photography of just having wonderful random colors just come into play and it's really changed my process and the prep. But it's about enjoying the moment and without the camera, but the thing is like, I'm just moving through time in my Instagram, collecting, it's kind of having a contact sheet for myself that references certain colors. So Instagram to me has been kind of an archive for me to reference certain moments oh, and interesting. color. So it's, it's kind of a, a, a loose, open gate, contact sheet for me, but I just share it. Well, I think, you know, in terms of a jump off point from street photography is that it's always trying to get that camera as small as possible. Mm. And I remember d during the pandemic for seven months, I didn't know it was going to be seven months, but I remember like, what do I do? There's no emails. You, you no only had a pandemic for seven months. Mine was like three years. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, what do we do? What I was watching Extraction mm. with Sam, the Sam Hargrave picture. Mm -hmm. And I was watching some of their handheld work. And the thing is like street photography is an obstacle course going up and down curbs, trying not to be noticed, trying to be seamless, trying to be hidden, not having them know that you're taking a picture of not them. Not attract much attention, yeah. Yeah, but I watched Extraction and the things that, the handheld work that Sam did just blew me away. I was not working out, I was watching the show of how he did handheld work and on TV I don't operate. And I just fell in love with his work. Like he was strapping himself to the hood of a car. He was like he was being cabled, jumping off roofs, handheld. He built a very small camera, which we call the combat camera. And you know, for me or even Brawley, you know, he has a different name for it, like F camera, football camera. It's something you hold close. And this is what this is with street photography. It's something close, immediate, reactionary, and it helps you be nimble. And I saw his work, but I understood that I had to have physical conditioning for it. And Sam is, comes from a stunt background and, and he was operating the camera. And I, and I just took a ton of pictures of behind the scenes of how he built the camera and how he moved and engineered and designed shots. So from then on, I ended up creating a workout uh, during the pandemic, I looked over, I saw these water jugs hanging there and they had a handle, like a top handle on the water jug. And I'm just like, you know what? I'm gonna, like, I got so inspired to work out. So I took the water jug with the handle and it was like this, it was like this mode. It was like a full blown oh, combat camera with, with the water. <laughs> and I went ballistic. I got so into it. I put cones, I was doing figure eights and I ended up studying boxing. What? tennis shuffles, wide receiver shuffles, and I incorporated making myself a workout. I lost 20 pounds during that seven months, oh <laughs> obsessed with Sam Hargrave and his handheld work. I was doing figure eights backwards because when you're operating, you're constantly walking backwards uh, on some shots, but that's not a natural thing. So what, it, what I did was to create a habitual body physical recollection of walking backwards, holding this huge 30 pound water, 20 pound jug of walking and it conditioned my body completely. It was the most fit I've ever been. 
in my life during this pandemic. And everyone's like, oh, you're doing the prison workout or you're doing, <laughs> and, it ba- and it was in the basement in the French Quarter at some parking garage, 103 degrees, horrible. Oh but I've never felt more alive and better. And it triggered me to study uh, how to breathe. You know, when you're holding a 150, you mm-hmm. feel your breathing. So I studied about sniper breathing. I, I studied Martha Graham dancer uh, breathing <laughs> techniques. So oh, wow. this extraction, oh contraction, because when you go down and do a low shot, you want to exhale. And when you stand up, your ribs open up, so you want to inhale. So I did all these workouts, jumping rope, because when we, we do TV, it's very rigorous. And you want to be in physical condition. So when I went back to Queen of the South, I noticed that me sitting even at the dip card or whatever, I, I felt just better. I felt like I was breathing better, moving better. Uh, and so lo- this is a total camera miracle. I come to find out, fourth episode in, Sam Hargrave is coming to the set as an actor and he's doing a stunt sequence. <laughs> and I told him this big seven month, like I was like, you inspired me to work out, you inspired me to build a better combat camera, Blackmagic gave me a 12K demo. Oh, yeah. I built it into a, a combat mode and I was running around with my pocket camera eventually. I got a medicine ball, I was like, it went like full stream. So Sam comes in, he goes like, well you know what this means, right? And I go, what, is, what does it mean? It's like, you're gonna shoot the stunt sequence. Yeah, you're gonna yeah, operate. That's right. <laughs> and so I, I did the stunt sequence. I shot, I operated 80% of it to see my footwork because it's about footwork. The cl- stunt sequence, you maybe shoot a little longer to be away because you don't know how fast they come towards you. But the whole engineering of this workout was to have your reaction time just like sports, you want to be able to react in real time, your footwork and short movements with the weight that you're carrying. And it was seamless. It was like I had my black magic camera. I took everything on it, put it on my chest and I had the ability to be quick. And I shot Sam doing the locker room fight. And it was like this total random thing for seven months. I was obsessed of his handheld work. And I got to team up with Sam Hargrave. And it was just like the universe saying like that hard work paid off and end up doing this beautiful Queen of the South locker room sequence. That, that's really fun. Uh, you know, of course, that movie, uh, Extraction, uh, Tom Siegel, it's a friend of the show, you know, uh, and uh, also uh, Michael Fitzmaurice, friend of the show, is the aerial DP on that and stuff. It's, it's an incredible look, and the Russo brothers, they, they you know, they, they do really, really visual movies, and uh, I, I think that's awesome that it was inspiration for you to to go down this path and to, and to, to, well, to do I'm, all these I'm, things. I'm waiting to do a, a, mo- my, a movie where I'm going to incorporate tons of choreography, some handheld. Now with the cameras with bigger Ks and stabilization and Ronin. So I'm just waiting for my time to do my, the, the cor- type of choreography, which will be a, a jump point for my street photography and lighting and everything that comes together. So I just can't wait for a future project where I can actually implement some of this. I, I think that's an awesome place to leave it. I mean, yeah, I a, a, Abe, you know, where can people find you if they want to track you down? First, your Instagram. Yeah, yeah, well, for, in, for sure your Instagram. Instagram, but, yeah. it's abe.martinez.dp, and that's pretty much it, Instagram. All right, well, yeah. we'll have a link for it in the show notes over at Cam Noir. Uh, Abe, so much fun. Thank, thanks so much for, for doing this again. I'm really glad we got and to catch up. let's not let it go eight more years. Yeah, no, please. No, a lot sooner, <laughs> like hopefully we, we, again. Uh, we, we've had some people on here, like uh, Checo Varese, we've had on, like, what? Four what, times? Four times, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we should be having you on <laughs> yeah, more but, often. But, you know, often Abe is, uh, you know, elsewhere in the world. Yeah. But it's it's great that we could catch but up in Zoom person. exists. Zoom exists, and, and we can do that. Well, so I'm yeah. glad we waited long enough we could do it in person. Yeah, that's true. It was fun. All right, so that was Abe Martinez. Abe, that was so much fun. I can't wait to do this again. And Let's hopefully... not let it be another. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not let it go be another eight years before we do it again.
And now, short ends. So, Ben, it is our favorite time of the show. It's our time to talk about our obsession of the week. Short ends. What is your obsession this week? What are you What are you into? Well, mine's a huge bummer. So, uh, oh no, put on. Put on <laughs> Great. Do you Do you want me to go first then? Since mine is not a bummer and it's technology, uh, I, I can do that. No, no, I'll I'll, I'll go. You ahead want to leave go. our leave our listeners, you know, on the downer. Or you want to give them the downer now? Well, uh, yeah, the downer is uh, a famed composer, Angelo Badalamente, uh, who passed away this week, and I believe he was eighty. Uh, you're you're, you're going to have to help me on this one. I, I don't know if I, I know the name Angelo Badalamente. Angelo Badalamente, probably best known for scoring basically all of David Lynch's best films or best known films. So he did Twin Peaks, mm. that haunting oh, score for yeah. Twin Peaks. That's him. Oh, got it. Yeah, that uh, <laughs> that's stuck in my head forever. <laughs> he he did the score for Blue Velvet. He did this. Uh, he, he did a bunch of his of uh, David Lynch scores, Lost Highway. Also, he did stuff like Nightmare on Elm Street Part Three, Dream Warriors, which. Oh, yeah. Can, you, it, I it, know you, you remember that. So. that mo- OK. <laughs> I, if I, you're gonna I, pick one, I'm a yeah. big I'm a big horror aficionado, and I recently revisited Nightmare on Elm Street three. That movie's brilliant, and by the way, it was co-written by Frank Darabont. Like, oh wow! It's uh, really yeah yeah. I then unknown Frank Darabont and and Chuck Russell. Uh, totally the unknown. Yeah, uh, that was decades before uh, before Shawshank. He also did like Christmas Vacation. You know, he he did just. Tons and tons and tons of amazing work. Anyway, I won't go on and on about it, but Angelo Badalamente, I believe, in his own way, changed the landscape of how we look at scores or how we hear scores. He he approached it in a very different way. He used electronic music kind of early, but he, uh, he, he was just friggin' amazing. He composed the score, I believe, for all 18 episodes of David Lynch's third season of Twin Peaks that was just a couple years ago. Mm. Uh, anyway, it's a big loss. But I'd say, like, let's take it for a moment and uh, and just, you know, remember him and appreciate his work. Uh, he was 85. Wow. Uh, all right. Well, I, uh, I'm i sorry I didn't know his name, but I certainly know his work. And his work is, uh, yeah, it speaks for him, for itself and uh, uh, he will be missed. I, I sometimes talk about, like, you know, we'll have a DP on here and I'll mention that I would go see a movie just because they shot it. There are a couple of movies I saw just because he did the score because I, oh, wow. I, I love his, yeah. his composing work. Nice. So, Elia, what is your short end this week? Well, I had a interesting visit from uh, someone who was working with a company called Lawa. Lawa, who, uh, you know, Hot Red Cameras sells their products. They make uh, really good lenses. They have a, a, an interesting history. The company has only been around a few years. But in that time, they've already come out with some really uh, fine, fun lenses, including just now starting to ship are these lenses called the Nanomorphics, uh, the Nanomorphs. The Nanomorphs are these tiny little anamorphic lenses. Uh, They're 1.5 times squeeze. They're really affordable, like $1,300. They're really good, high quality lenses. But I had someone, someone came by and was like, hey, Ilya, you need to check out this. And it's a beta prototype lens, which just debuted at Interbee in Japan from Lawa. And it's called the Proteus. It was a 45 millimeter, two times anamorphic lens. And uh, he said, hey, let's put it on your projector and take a real close look at it. And we did that. 
And for those of you who don't know, a lens projector actually gives you an objective way to evaluate lenses. Uh, essentially, there's a test pattern called a reticle that a bright light is shown through and that's projected through the lens onto your wall or onto a screen, which, which is what we did. And it gives you a real point of reference. You can compare it to really expensive lenses, really inexpensive lenses, everything in between. And we had some of that. We had the other anamorphic lenses. And when I put this one up, I was blown away at the quality and it seemed to have sort of the vertical focusing, which is a very desirable effect that, you know, Panavision lenses are, are, are famous for. And it had really, really good sharpness. And it's based around the idea of a, a Super 35, which is about 99% of all media is, has been shot in the professional cinema and a lot for television in this, this format. And I don't know what it's going to cost, but... If it's made by Lawa, and Lawa is known to really push the envelope for high quality and affordable, I am predicting that this will be a very affordable, like an individual could afford a very, you know, high-end premier sort of Super 35 two-time squeeze anamorphics, which will cover Super 35 sensors, and uh, they're fast, they're at T2, and they definitely clean up a lot by by 2.8. Uh, I think that uh, if they hit a good price point, then these lenses are really going to, uh, are really going to clean up. They're, they're going to, people are going to have a, a huge response to this. And I think you're going to see a lot more Lawa sort of like, you know, higher end anamorphic lenses owned by, by all levels of people out there just because the price is, is so affordable, hmm. but also the quality is, is really, it's not like anything I've seen so far. Wow. Wow. That's exciting. I'd like to check those out. Yeah. And uh, I, I expect it'll come back at some point. I don't know when uh, and I don't mm. know when other, what other focal lengths will be. It really was kind of a surprise thing in November at, at Interbeats in Japan, which is sort of like their NAB. Uh, and there were some people who gave it gave it some feedback. It's a it was a prototype lens. But looking at it in a projector tells you a lot. I mean, it doesn't tell you everything, but it tells you an awful lot about the quality. And uh, I if it only goes up from here, this is, is a, it's a big deal. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I think that wraps us up this week. Thanks again to A. Martinez for being our returning champion from way back. I feel like we, we need to go touch back base with uh, Chris Komen and Jason Wingrove and Fraser, Fraser Bradshaw. We got too many Frasers in the world. It screws me up. Anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I think that'd be wonderful. Uh, we, we should definitely go and reconnect with, you know, the people who helped start us off. That'll be, be wonderful. I guess uh, maybe that means we have to bring back Bill Totolo as well. Oh, well, you know, I can't stand that guy. <laughs> I love, yeah. And I, I know, I love I know Bill, that you, worked, you worked with them. You worked with them just recently. So I, I, I know that, that I worked with him on, on back to back projects. And uh, he's he's just an amazing uh, he's an amazing guy. Very funny, very clever, very smart. Awesome shooter. So yeah. good. His his work is uh, friggin brilliant. I, I love working with Bill anyway. Yeah. All uh, right. So, Ben, where can people find you? Please, please, please go to audible.com and listen to catchers and uh, reach out to me. If you don't want to pay for it, I can probably hook you up with the code. But uh, if you have audible, it's free. If you are interested in audible, you can get a free 30 day trial. Listen to my thing, listen to some other stuff, then cancel it. Don't care. And uh, other than that, please go to benrock.com uh, where you will find a link to catchers and uh, you can uh, connect with me on uh, Twitter as long as uh, I'm, I'm still on Twitter. Still there. <laughs> my, my tweeting hasn't really changed that much. I, I will mm. say this for Twitter. Uh, suddenly I'm getting a lot of weird spammy offers and a lot of like political extremists with 10 followers, you know, 
who wow who in no way are a bot or a troll farm somewhere are suddenly <laughs> commenting on stuff that I'm doing and and uh, like trying to get me to argue with them. I mean seriously, there's been a like a sea change over, almost overnight. I couldn't tell you why that might be, but anyway, I'm still at Neptune Salad on Twitter, mostly talking about film stuff and uh, anything else you can find over at uh, Benrock.com. Uh, you can find me on Mastodon as well, which is you know like sort of my escape hatch out of Twitter. Uh, how about yourself, Ilya? Where can people find you? You can find me at Hot Rod Cameras. HotRodCameras.com is the uh, the website, which is currently uh, undergoing a huge facelift, and I've been spending a lot of my days on the new site. The new site's not up yet, but I am hopeful. I'm hopeful that in 60 days, 60 days, we, we will have a new site, and it'll be very exciting, including a new blog and podcast links and all kinds of fun stuff. I'm working on a feature right now so you can be on the site and listen to the podcast. I, I hope it happens. It'll be great. Oh, I thought you meant you were working on a feature like you were working on a movie. No, no. So, well, so, no, I'm working on the feature of being able to listen to our podcast, hearing your voice and mine while shopping at Hot Rod Cameras, like a little player oh. that can that could play the latest episode while you're browsing around and looking at stuff. So, I mean, for, for whatever that's worth, nothing, nothing sells more cameras than hearing the sound of my voice. So you're welcome. <laughs> Uh, Every once in a while, someone does, you know, listen to the podcast and does come in and does buy stuff and tells us. And you know what? Uh, usually they get a piece of swag with that. They get a free T-shirt or hat or something. In fact, they don't even have to buy something. Yeah, I, I, I they, used to they, encourage them to angrily ask you for their T-shirt that they uh, that they are uh, entitled to have. I have to make new T-shirts, though. Uh, we had a party and uh, the party last week was brilliant it was so good it was it was a really awesome party uh it was our customer appreciation shindig we gave away like tens of thousands of dollars and and swag it was or not swag but but actual gear and uh a ton of people some some of it went to abe martinez Uh, yeah abe martinez won which was which was awesome so uh yeah and we we even mentioned that in our in our interview which is which is so random and and wonderful there was a, a few people who won who i knew which was just awesome but we try to keep that party uh in in a way so that not too many people show up so you have a really good chance of winning when you give away 10 prizes and there's 170 180 people there your chances are actually really pretty good about winning something it's not not too bad yeah. Anyway, so Ben, let's thank some people. Who should we thank this week? Uh, we should thank Alana Cody, who is uh, getting us out there. Get, had me at a, at a screening of a movie. I'll, I'll give you a hint what the movie was. It, it is three hours and nine minutes long. I'll say no more. Um, I did not know it was that long going in. Uh, Shortcuts. Very, very, very great movie. But uh, man, I did not know that I was going to be there for three hours and nine minutes. But let's thank her. Uh, she's got a ton of kick-ass interviews coming up. Uh, one, one of my bucket list cinematographers, maybe one of them, don't want to don't want to ruin it by mentioning them by name. Um, we should also thank Ben Katz, who tirelessly uh, struggles to make us not sound like idiots. Is generally successful. Anything that makes us sound kind of smart is definitely Ben. And uh, lastly, we should also thank Kay's Alatrakshi, who scored every piece of music that you've heard on this podcast. Uh, check him out at musicbykays.com. Send him a message of some kind. Just one of you. All you have to do is go there. There's like a message thing. Send him a message. Tell him you heard his music on the podcast. It costs you nothing. It'll it'll make his day. And then hire him if you can. But, you know, you don't have to. Anyway, that's about it. <laughs> Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.